Thank you for watching this message from The Bridge Church. Our vision here is to be a church that is for Christ, for community, and for the city. Today's message is from the sermon series, The King's Cause. It's a walk through the Gospel of Mark. And if this message has impacted you in any way, please email us at stories at thebridgeilm.com. All right. Hey, can we put our hands together and just um, celebrate that be able to do this? Um, Man, I am so excited about, about this. Today is Commitment Sunday for Christmas for uh, the city. And so if you're new, I'm sorry, uh, but what you just stepped into today is a day that we've been talking about for several weeks now, um, uh, about Christmas for the city, uh, an annual giving initiative that we do that goes 100% outside of the Bridge Church to partner with local organizations and opportunities in local schools, uh, international church planting, missions, all sorts of things that, that we get to participate with. And so uh, today is Commitment Sunday. And so later in the worship gathering, we're going to be encouraging each of you, if you call the Bridge Church home, to participate in that. Uh, to be a part of what we are, are doing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be uh, great. So if you are new, my name is Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you so much for, for being here. If you've got a Bible, I want you to go ahead and grab your Bible and open it to the Gospel of Mark, which is in the New Testament, right after Matthew. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 today. And um, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, we'll actually give you one uh, for free today at the resource area. You can grab one, and then we'll put the verses on the screen as well so that you're not lost as we're, as we're walking uh, through this together. And I just want to say this as well at the beginning. Um, man, I, am, I, I love our church. Um, I'm so glad to, to be here today. I love you. Um, I love each of you. Uh, this has been... I, one of those weeks for me, it's been a crazy week. <laughs> it's like one of those weeks, I'm just grateful to be here, you know? And so, man, I just, I just got here this morning and just felt so uh, encouraged um, as we get together as a family to worship and to celebrate. And so I just, I love you, and uh, thank you for letting me be your pastor. I'm, I'm excited about being here today. So, all right, we're in Mark chapter 3, and um, I'm going to begin in verse 7. But before we jump in, why don't we go ahead and bow our heads for uh, a word of prayer. Let's, let's pray together. God, I do uh, pray that you would meet with us today, that uh, this would be uh, your time and your, your moment, your space. Um, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman watches in vain. And so we ask that this would not be uh, just a program, a production, an event, but this would be a place where you come in your power and your presence to help us, to meet us, to change us, uh, to help us to see you. So, God, we, do, we ask for that. We ask for that in the moments that we have here today. And we ask this in Jesus' good name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. All right, Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. This is what it says, Mark chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. A great crowd heard all that he was doing and came to him. So there is a massive amount of people that are now flocking to Jesus. Jesus, at this point in his life, is still at the early stages of his ministry. He's been traveling. He's been preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. And he's been doing all sorts of miraculous things, changing people, healing people, amazing things. And it says that there's a huge crowd that is around him. Can you see him? Can you see it there? It says that they are from all sorts of different areas of the region. Uh, Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, uh, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, Tyre, and Sidon. This is literally like the surrounding countries. Uh, there, one commentator said there's like thousands of people 
that are coming to Jesus. I mean, it's just amazing. There's so many people. Look at me in verse 9. It goes on, says this. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. All of you men who've been looking for biblical justification to have a boat, you are welcome. You are welcome. Jesus is so slammed. He's so bombarded by the people that are around him. He tells his disciples, find a boat. You know, uh, just find a boat. He's withdrawing. He's, um, he's trying to have a day at the lake. You know? <laughs> he's trying to get away for a little while, and he just, he just can't. It's like he can't hardly breathe because all the people that have surrounded him. I mean, a great crowd was, was following him. He tells his disciples to get a boat ready because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Like, that's not like metaphorical, you know, like, they're going to crush my spirit. No, like, they literally will trample him. <laughs> like, find a boat. I don't care if it's a fishing boat. I don't care if it's like a cruiser. I don't care what it is. Find a boat and put me in it uh, because they are going to trample me uh, to death. Now, look at, verse, uh, look at verse 10. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now, we don't, we don't, we don't feel the uh, enormity of, of what's happening here. We live in the 21st century. If you have a headache, what do you do? You pop a couple of Tylenol. <laughs> You're not feeling good. Uh, something's wrong with your body. What do you do? You just call the doctor. You get an appointment. He's going to have some kind of medication, some kind of prescription, antibiotic. Just, you know, in a few days you will be fine. Well, that's not how it worked in the first century. In the first century, specifically in this area, uh, one of the commentators that I read said that um, the average life expectancy for someone during this time period was 30 years, <laughs> like 30, 30 years. Isn't that crazy? I mean, some of you are like in your, your mid-30s, and you're like, I haven't even lived half my life. In the first century, you'd be lucky to be alive. I mean, you, you, just, you, you just don't have the, uh, the access to prescription drugs and to medical needs that, that you would want. So imagine that's you. Imagine it's you in the first century. You've got a disease. You've got some kind of illness that you're suffering from. Imagine your kid is sick. Imagine your kid needs to be healed and there's no one around that can do anything about the illness that, that your kid has. What are you going to do? You, you can do anything necessary to, to, to do what you can to help them get healed. And so what happens is this rogue prophet, a religious leader, is traveling the Mediterranean world and word spreads that even if you just touch him, you can be healed. And so people are coming from every region surrounding him coming to Jesus, just hoping to at least have the opportunity to touch him and to be healed. And so thousands of people, perhaps, thousands of people have surrounded him trying to get healed from their diseases. Look at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, uh, this is a demonic spirit, demonic oppression, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Now, this is really bizarre. Uh, Jesus is surrounded by the crowd, and it seems like the only people that actually know who Jesus is are the demon-possessed people. <laughs> it's, like, it's like weird. Everybody else just thinks he's some like, good moral prophet, teacher, healer, whatever. He's like a great guy. But there's these demonic spirits that uh, still exist today um, that are living, inhabiting people's bodies, and they're actually speaking out, you are the Son of God. What that means, what they understand is that they recognize that this guy, Jesus, is not just some random teacher that showed up in the first century. They call him the son of God. They recognize that he is from God. 
Like this isn't just like some like cute metaphorical language, we're all God's sons. No, this is God the Son. God entering human history, taking on human form, walking the ground that they are walking. And the demons are so freaked out by this, they're even calling him out his name that he is the Son of God. Now look with me in verse 12. This is kind of interesting. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. That's kind of interesting to me. Like they're the only ones that actually know who he is. He's like, guys, shut up. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons why. Uh, first, he's like, um, I don't want the only people that know who I am to be uh, associated with you because we aren't on the same team. All right? <laughs> We're not on the same team, so keep your mouth shut. Um, you're, you're not allowed to say that. Now, another th- reason why I think this is perhaps the case is because uh, Jesus is at a point in his ministry, a point in his life where he isn't ready for everything to be revealed about who he is. At this stage in the game, he is demonstrating the kingdom of God. He's demonstrating signs and wonders, healing people, restoring people. He's doing works of reconciliation. He's bringing people together that are never together. He's doing amazing things, and he's not quite ready for the announcement of his sonship to say, uh, to be recognized and to be uh, proclaimed to the entire world yet. Now look at me in verse 13. It goes on and says this. And he, this is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and he called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. So Jesus does a little mountain retreat. Uh, He's exhausted from ministry, invites a few people to go on a retreat with him. Let's go up to the mountain. Got a little cottage up there. Probably not, but uh, let's go up to the mountain. Uh, We'll get some sticks together, make a little fire. It'll be a great time. Hopefully find some food. Uh, Let's come with me. He does a little mountain retreat. Verse 14, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. The word apostle, it's from the Greek word apostello. It means a sent one. And he appointed the 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. These guys show up to the mountain retreat and they weren't ready for what was going down. (laughs) They show up and Jesus is like, hey, guess what, guys? Um, You are now on my team. And I am going to uh, appoint you as leaders over this movement that is going to become Christianity that will one day billions of people will follow and associate with me. Are you ready? They show up and Jesus appoints them. Now, who does he appoint? Verse uh, 16. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, uh, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boerginese. I'm not even sure that's the right way to say that. That is, uh, sons of thunder. Verse 18. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Here's what I would like to do uh, in our time uh, today. It seems like Jesus is always surrounded by two groups of people. It seems like Jesus is always in close proximity to two kinds, two groups of people who actually um, are near him but aren't exactly on the same page. On one end, you see the crowd. The crowd, they are there coming to Jesus, flocking to him. We see the group, the crowd, and then we see the group, the called. The crowd and the called, and I think what we see in our text today is uh, four characteristics, I'll say, uh, the differences between uh, the crowd and the called. So if you are wondering today, am I the crowd or am I the called? Hopefully you will know by the end. And hopefully this uh, is not devastating to you. But here are four, what I believe, uh, four characteristics to uh, what I would say four characteristics of the call. Here's the first one, number one. Um, When Jesus calls you, when Jesus calls you, he gives you a new closeness. When Jesus calls you, he gives you a new uh, closeness. 
You ever been in a uh, been to a concert, been in a crowded room, maybe perhaps been around hundreds of people, but actually didn't feel close to anyone? You, you ever been uh, sitting on your couch uh, beside your spouse and felt like they were a million miles away? You ever been in your room with your roommates, felt like no one cared about you, felt like no, you weren't actually very close to any of them? What's interesting about Jesus and what we, we see here is that Jesus uh, wasn't just content with the crowd, uh, he wanted a closeness with people that he wanted a community with people. Verse 13, it says that uh, those whom he desired, the 12, those whom he desired, the idea behind this word, to desire, it's to want. Those who he he wanted. And then verse verse 14 says that he might be with them. We we see this, and um, it seems like Jesus is just doing his organizational chart for his business, right? Right? He's selecting 12 leaders. He's trying to create a structure in which the uh, business can thrive. And so therefore, he appoints a few leaders, departments, vice presidents to oversee different areas of the, the movement. That, that's, that's not the case. So Jesus, he's surrounded by uh, the crowd, but he actually wants people to be close to him. It says that the 12 disciples were those whom he desired, those whom he wanted to be with him. Now, I know in a, a room this size, several people, perhaps a lot of people in this room, um, don't feel very desirable. Perhaps you're here today and you don't feel very wanted. Perhaps you're here today and you kind of feel unwanted. Perhaps by a spouse, perhaps by a family member, perhaps by a coworker, roommate, whatever your situation is. Here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Do you know that if Jesus is calling you, that he desires you? What that means is that if you were someone that would consider yourself to have a relationship with Jesus, that you you know know, him, the reason that's the case is because he wants you. I find that amazing. You know, that's very different than religion, as we talked about last week. Religion wants your stuff, but it doesn't really want you. Jesus shows up. And he, he just doesn't want a crowd of people around. He could have started a megachurch. He could have had a TV ministry. I mean, it could have been, it could have been awesome. But he, he would rather, he invites 12 people into close proximity to him to have a closeness with him. And regardless of who you are here today, regardless of maybe what your background is, what your, your pain is, what your past is, even if you're a believer or not a believer, I believe that if you're in this room today, that God wants you that God desires you. And it doesn't matter how you walk in here today, you might be homeless. I actually got to meet someone in between the two worship gatherings. That is, I can't even pay their, their rent, but they heard about the Bridge Church and showed up hoping that we could help them out. Um, you, you might be a part of the LGBT uh, community here. You, I, don't, I don't know where, where you are, but do you know that you are wanted here? Do you know that we desire you and we love you? And it isn't because of anything that you bring to the table. It's just simply because Jesus loves you. And he wants you. He wants a closeness with you. See, the first thing that is the first characteristic that differentiates you between the crowd, the crowd and the called, it's a closeness with God. It's a closeness with Jesus. Just out of curiosity, um, do you here today have a closeness with God? Um. I didn't say, do you 
I have a closeness with a church affiliation or church membership? Or do you have a closeness to a Christian tradition in which you have been involved your entire life? I asked if you have a closeness to God. Because God wants you and he desires you and he wants to be close to you. And Jesus here, he's surrounded by people. He's surrounded by people, by a crowd of people that don't really want him, but they want what he has. Here's, here's one way that I'll say it, the difference between the crowd and the called. The crowd wants Jesus for what he gives. The called wants Jesus for who he is. The crowd just wants what Jesus can give them. They're just showing up for, for, for helping out, for healing me, for whatever they, they need. They're just there. They're not there because of Jesus. They're there because of what Jesus can, can, can give them. Um, do, you, do you show up to church primarily because of what God will give you or just simply because of God? I mean, do, you, do you put money in the offering plates because of what you want out of it, what you want God to give you, or just simply because of the generosity of God, because of who God is? One of the things that I um, try to pray on a regular basis when I pray is um, at the beginning, I try to say, God, I thank you for the thousands of ways that you have blessed me in Christ. That right now, if God doesn't bless me one more time for the rest of my life, I already have enough blessing from him already. He's blessed me thousands upon thousands of ways that I don't even understand. I can't even acknowledge. But if God doesn't bless me for one more day the rest of my life, if he doesn't heal me of a disease, if he doesn't change my marriage, if he doesn't change my finances or my career, I will be happy and content in him because he's blessed me all that I deserve or more than I deserve in Christ. Amen? Amen. And the difference between uh, the crowd and the called, it's, it's you don't want Jesus for what he gives. You just want Jesus for who he is for who he is. And so uh, that's my heart and that's, that's my prayer. Here's, here's the second characteristic, I think, of the call that we see from this. Not only a new closeness, but when Jesus calls you, he gives you a new community. He gives you a new uh, community. In order to understand what's going on in this passage, it seems like a little cute story, Jesus in a mountain retreat with 12 guys, all right? In order to understand this, you have to go back to Exodus chapter uh, 19, which I will do. I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 19 and read a short passage that is kind of a foreshadow of what Jesus is doing actually in, in our passage. Exodus 19 verse 1 says this, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, they've been delivered from Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Wilderness theology, Mark talks about this a lot. It's a desert theology that God meets you in the desert, verse 2. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. They encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. They're at Mount Sinai. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Do you see some of the similarities here? Where's Moses? He's on a mountain. He's with God. He has been instructed to be a part of God's people, leading God's nation. 
The way that God has orchestrated history is that he would bless the world, Genesis 12 tells us, through Abraham, and that his new nation, his new kingdom of people would be a blessing to all peoples of the world. That means that that all those who come into contact with God's people would therefore experience blessing through them, and that this nation in particular would be a blessing to all the nations of, of, of the world. This was also a nation, God's people, that were responsible for demonstrating justice in the world. That in all the nations, historically, we're talking Old Testament, throughout the world, the nation of Israel will be people that champion justice, that they cared for the oppressed, that they treated people unlike any other nation on on the planet. They were supposed to demonstrate that, and they were also supposed to demonstrate worship and praise to God, living lives of worship and adoration to to God and and who who he is. Now, unfortunately, by Jesus' time, the nation of Israel is literally unraveling. You could kind of say it's almost failed. The 12 tribes are literally disintegrating. The the kingdom, the the expectation of what was supposed to happen didn't happen exactly the way that it should. Here's the reason why. That was supposed to point us to Jesus and a new king and a new kingdom who would have not 12 tribes, but two leaders who would live out a new kingdom and a new nation and new people that would be responsible for demonstrating justice in the world, that would live out um, this new representation of, of who he is. Now, if... We don't first immediately see the parallels between the the 12 tribes. The number 12 isn't that big of a deal to us. For instance, if I said the number to you today, uh, the number 535, probably doesn't carry too much of a significance. It's actually the number of Congress, how many congressmen we have, 435 in the House and 100 in the Senate. 535 isn't like that big of a, a number to us. If I said the number 100... Um, that doesn't really necessarily strike a chord to each of us, but it's the number of counties that are in North Carolina. But what if I said the number 50? What does that represent? It represents states. Every single person in this room immediately identifies with a number 50 that it is the, the states, the number of states that the United States has. Well, when Jesus brings 12 leaders to the mountain and says that I'm going to have 12 new leaders to, to live out this new kingdom... Every Jew would have immediately understood what Jesus was trying to do. That he's creating a new community. That he's creating a new group of people that will be representative of God and his reign and what it looks like to be a part of his uh, kingdom. So here's this. One of the ways that you know that you're no longer part of the crowd, but you're part of the called, is that you find a new community in God's people in the church. That that, that church isn't for you just some kind of event that you get to participate in, that you go to and bounce around from a few here and there in order to get a few helpful spiritual you know, nuggets for your, your life. When you become part of the called, when Jesus calls you, you become a part of his new com- community, his new kingdom community, a community that's unlike any other community on the face of the planet, a community that demonstrates the heart of God to all, all peoples. Here's what's interesting about these 12 disciples, um, these 12 apostles. Um, half of the group is fishermen. Uh, there are, uh, there's at least one tax collector, and there is a zealot. Um, these kinds of people don't like each other. These kinds of people in the first century don't get along. They're not on the same kickball team. <laughs> They're not playing bridge together on Tuesday night. I mean, they, these are not the same... Uh, These people do not get along. But Jesus intentionally 
uh, creates a community of people that would, know, would never be in community with e- each other. They are on very far ends of the political spectrum. Uh, the, the zealot, he was someone that would have been a, a political activist for the Hebrew people in direct opposition to Caesar. And then you've got the tax collector who worked for Caesar. And Jesus puts them both on the same team. <laughs> Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's doing something that is unlike anything on the, on the face of the planet. He's bringing people together. He is a God of reconciliation, which means for us, like we, we want to be a church that is reconciled. We want to be a church where it doesn't matter what you look like or what your background is or what your political affiliation is, is that you come into this room and we're all the same community. We're the kingdom of God here in this, this place. And when we do that, when we live that out, we are then a representation of the heart of God and what God wants to do in our city. It, it's, my, it's my prayer that the Bridge Church and hopefully other churches, but the Bridge Church specifically in Wilmington gets to a point where the city looks at the Bridge Church for what it means to be reconciled, of what it means to do reconciliation. That, that means that, that we, all sorts of different political opinions here in the room today, that we got to do a good job of loving each other got to do a good job of, of, of helping each other, be in relationship together, of wanting to understand first rather than be understood, want, want to, to love, to, to care more about a person than a, a policy, that we care about one another and that we're going to do whatever it takes to, to help each other walk through this. And Jesus, one of the things that he does is he creates a new community. Now, here's, here's the third thing that I see. The third characteristic of the call is this. When Jesus calls you, he gives you a new center. He gives you a new center. Um, I'm going to have to break this down um, for you in in what I mean. Um, How many of you find it interesting that Jesus feels the liberty to give people new names? (laughs) Um, You know, poor Simon, you know? I mean, like, for his entire life, he probably grew up as little Sai-Sai. People, you know, kids... (laughs) Called him that on the, the playground, and you know, his, his whole family, his, his parents named him Simon. But he, he meets Jesus, and Jesus calls him into his new community, and Jesus changes his name. He just changes his name, and he says, Simon, people aren't going to call you Simon anymore. People are going to call you Peter. Uh, do you know what the, the, the Greek for, for Peter is? It's Petros, which is where we get the word rock from. He, he gives Peter a new name. Peter is going to be the leader of the 12. Jesus is very funny in the way that he works. Um, he calls uh, Simon, he says, I'm going to change your name to Rock. You know, like, think the Rock, you know. Like, I'm sure Simon is like, um, who would you say, Jesus? Who are, you, who are you changing their name? I'm sure you're not talking about me. He changes his name. He gives him a new identity. He, he gives him a new center. He changes the, the course of, of Peter's life. Peter was a guy that, that we see throughout the rest of the Gospels uh, drop the ball several times. <laughs> it's like, strike one, Peter. Oh, strike two. Strike three. Still want him on your team, Jesus. Strike four. Like, the other thing that's interesting about the way that Jesus does this, this word appoint, uh, this word appointed is also could be translated as created. So when it says Jesus appointed the 12, Jesus created the 12. What, the idea there is that Jesus is creating them, he's calling them, he's taking them to a place that they aren't on th- themselves. If Peter may not feel like a rock in the moment, but Jesus is going to make him a rock. Uh, Jesus, um, Peter may not feel like he's going to be the leader of, of the 12, but Jesus is going to make him the leader of the 12. 
He's giving him a new identity. And then he does it as well to James and John. They're the other two that are in the inner circle of Jesus, the group of three of the 12, James and John. It says that he changes their name to Boergenes or however you say that. But I love this. It says that it's, it's a nickname. He gives them a nickname, uh, which means sons of thunder. That's, I want that on my business card. That's like awesome, you know? Like Jesus says, you guys, you are sons of thunder. You know, I, just, that's, I'm, I want to go on a retreat and somebody call me son of thunder. I just think that would be amazing. He gives them, and I'll, I'll say, a new center. He, he changes the core of who they are. In, in, the, in ancient culture, to change someone's name would have been ridiculous. In, in ancient culture, your name was extremely important. It conveyed the essence of who you are. It had with it your own power and authority. And Jesus shows up and he changes his name. What, 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 is, what is he doing? He's giving him a new identity. He's giving his 12 disciples, he's giving them a new, he's giving them a new center. The center of you is what defines you. It's what determines whether or not you feel worthy. It determines what are, whether or not you feel significant or important or valuable in the world. Whatever that is, that is your center. And what Jesus does when you meet him, he gives you a new center. He gives you himself. We say this at the bridge, Jesus at the center. What that means is that your new identity revolves and is wrapped up in who Jesus is and what he has done, which means you live out your life in light of not what you can accomplish or what you can do or what you have done, but in what Jesus has accomplished and what he has done for you. It's a new, it's a new center. The, the way that I do this um, with my girls is um, I talk about my girls all the time because they're just easy targets. Um, but I have three girls, uh, five, all under uh, five and under. And one of the things that we do at our, in our family tradition is that when we gather around the dinner table to, to eat, um, we pray. Typically, there's a fight over who prays first, and so uh, typically they both pray. Um, and then we read aloud our family rules. If you've ever been to my house for dinner, you, you've heard them read the family rules. Um, we have it on a little uh, canvas up on the wall. Um, let me see if I can uh, get it right. Um, we laugh loud. We cry hard. We sing and dance. We help and give. We try hard, we never give up, we pray, we love, we are family. And it's on, it's on the wall, and, and Nora, she can spit it out. I mean, she just, she just knows it. And I'm trying to, to foster in her and create in her and, and our other girls what it means to be a Welch. What it means to be a Welch is that you don't give up. You never give up. You help and give. You, you, don't, you don't steal from your sisters. You help and you give. You love, you, you pray. We laugh loud, we cry hard. This is what it means to be a Welch. I'm trying to define for them what it means to to be in our family. Here's the other thing that I'm doing is I want them to understand uh, what it means to know God, what it means to know Jesus, that Jesus changes us. So uh, we made this canvas that also hangs in our wall in the dining room. And this is what it says. You may not be able to read it from where you are, but at the top it says, in Jesus, in Jesus, dot, dot, dot. It says, I am chosen. I am called. I am loved. I am new. I am free. I am safe. I am strong. I am sent. And our, our girls, um, uh, we're, we're saying this as well. They haven't memorized it yet, but they're saying this as well at, at the dinner table almost on a, on a daily basis. Why? Because I want them to primarily be defined by Jesus and what Jesus does for them. I want them to know that they're chosen, that they're not a mistake, that, that, that God has chosen them. Jesus tells his disciples over and over again, you didn't choose me, I chose you. 
I want them to know that, that, that Jesus wants them, that he desires them, that he chose them, that, that they're called, I am called, that, that Jesus has called them to himself, that they've got a calling on their, their lives, whatever that looks like for them, that they're loved, that regardless of anybody else around them doesn't love them, that Jesus loves them, that they're new. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that when you meet Jesus, he makes you into a new creation, he gives you a new mind, a new heart, a new desire. He, he, makes you a, he gives you a brand new life and that in Jesus you're new. You're free. I am free. That I don't need the shackles of uh, beauty. I don't need the shackles of a certain level of income. I don't need the shackles of a certain kind of relationship in order to feel free in my life. Jesus has set me free from those things. I'm free and I am safe. There's no situation in my life where I will be where I won't be safe in the presence of God. That I am strong that I got the Holy Spirit inside me to do everything that God has called me to do. I am strong in him. And the last one, I am sent, which is a little bit unique, but it means I'm sent on a mission with Jesus and that he has a, a plan and a purpose for my life. I'm trying to, trying to give them a new center. I'm trying to get them to see and to articulate the way that they define themselves, what makes, what's central to who they are isn't the things that are around them, but it's Jesus in them. And when you meet Jesus, when you meet him, he gives you a new center. He changes you. He makes you new. He calls you. He loves you. He just, he transforms your, your life and he, he gives you the worth, the value, the dignity that you've longed for, that you've been trying to find in all the things and all the places that you can't find it. It is in him. When you find him, amen, he gives you a new center. And then here's, here's the last one. When you meet Jesus, um, when he calls you, the fourth characteristic, when Jesus calls you, he gives you a new cause. He gives you a new cause. Jesus says specifically, or the text says specifically in verse uh, 14, that he appointed the 12 um, so that they might be with him and he might send them out. Send them out. At the bridge every week, we say at, at the end of our worship gathering, as you go, go and make disciples. That's the great commission. That's the call of what Jesus has commanded us. He's going to not only call his disciples to himself, he's going to send them out on a mission. And then it says he's going to send them out to preach. How many of you in the room are preachers? Just out of curiosity. Ah, you failed the test. We are all preachers. We're all, maybe you don't do what I do, perhaps. I don't even think this is exactly what Jesus had in mind. But that we, we preach, that means we've got a good news, we've got a message that we speak, that we talk about, and that we share that with the world, and that wherever God has sent you, wherever he has placed you, whether it's in an insurance office, whether it's on a family farm, whether it's in a, in, a, in, a, in a school or an educator, whether it's a doctor, whether it's whatever you're in, that you are preaching, that you got a message that you're sharing with the world. Amen. And he sends you out. He gives you a new cause. He gives you a new cause for living. That the most important thing in the world is that people know that God loves them and that you love them. And you go out and you got a, a new message. You're all preachers now. Speaking the truth, and some of that, that may, some of you that may seem intimidating to you, I don't know what to say. All you got to say is, is, is what God gives you in the moment. Um, whatever He le leads you to say. Do you know Jesus? Then just say, I know Jesus. Just say that God loves you. That's easy. Regardless of what somebody's going through, what your coworker is working through, whatever your roommate is fighting through, just tell them that God loves them. That you got a message, that you got a good news to share. It gives you, he, God gives you, he gives you a new cause. 
See, we are, uh, we're trapped in a culture that has fed us the lie our entire lives that this world is about you, it's about me. We live in a culture that, that tells you in order to really experience life, you need to be happy. You need to, to be the best that you can be. You need to do whatever you have to do in order to make yourself happy. Look out for yourself. Climb the ladder yourself. That's not the way that it's supposed to work. That's the wrong cause. Jesus' cause, you could say, the king's cause is to recognize that you aren't at the center, but, but God is. And Tim Keller, he, he says it this way. I love the way that he says it. You must lose yourself to find yourself. That means the way that you really understand who you are and what you were meant to be is that you lose yourself, that you give up yourself, that you lose your life. Jesus says, if anyone wants to, to follow me, he must come and die. That means die to himself, die to his own cause and live for Jesus' cause. And it's in that moment when you do that that you actually experience the life that you were meant to live. That's why we do Christmas for the city. Christmas for the city is an attempt in a culture that we live in that spends $600 billion on ourselves in November and December every year. It's an attempt to try to demonstrate that it's not about us, that it's about Jesus' mission, that it's about people other than ourselves. And when Jesus calls you, he gives you a new cause. Um, this past week was a really interesting week um, for me. Uh, Wednesday was one of those days where you just don't want to get out of the bed. One of those days where uh, it doesn't matter what you think or process, it, you're just having a, a rough day. Well, Thursday morning I get news, and I didn't know this on Wednesday, but Thursday morning I get the news that my granddad passed away um, on late Wednesday night. And he was 85. I mean, he, he, he'd lived a long, uh, good life. Um, he... Uh, had battled pneumonia this past year and was in and out of the hospital. And I got to see him last week, though. Uh, I got to see him, and um, thank God for technology. I showed him pictures of the girls on my iPhone. I showed him a picture of me uh, catching a big fish, which made him happy. And, um, and his, his, his funeral was, was yesterday in South Carolina. And um, I don't think I've ever been a part of a funeral like this, but it was a military funeral. Uh, my granddad, he was a Marine. Uh, he, he fought in the Korean War and, and some others as a Marine. And I really, really appreciated what uh, the ceremony that they did. Two Marines were there. Uh, one bugle player that played taps, unbelievably powerful. And then the two uh, Marines, uh, the flag that's laying over his casket, they come to the side and they, uh, it takes them several minutes, but they fold the flag and they walk over to my grandmother uh, get down on one knee and present the flag to her and say, thank you for your husband's service and his sacrifice to our country. It was amazing. My granddad was a man, at least for a season of his life, that lived for a cause that was greater than himself. He, he lived in, for a cause that was worth even sacrificing himself for the good of others. When Jesus calls us He's calling you to a cause that is worth sacrificing and giving up your life for the sake of others. And the way that you get the power and the ability to do that is to recognize that Jesus already did that for you. 
that Jesus came and he sacrificed himself, though he could have stayed in heaven, though you could have gone to hell, he came and walked the earth that you were called to walk and he lived the life that you couldn't live, died the death that you should have died, and then conquered the grave that you couldn't conquer. He sacrificed himself for you. And therefore, in joyful response to the calling that Jesus gives on our lives, we give up our lives for him and for his gospel and for his kingdom. Amen? That's what it means to be not a part of the crowd, but that's what it means to be a part of the called. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your, your word today and the way that the text instructs us and informs us and inspires us to live uh, the life that we should live, the calling that you have placed on our lives. And uh, we don't do a good job. Sometimes we're like Peter, um, but God, help us to be um, a part of the called and to follow you and to live this out the way that you have for us. God, I pray specifically for Christmas for the city today. I pray that this would be an uh, 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 undeniable, tangible representation of the way that we can bless our city, and not only our city, but our nation and our world. So God, we, we say this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.